Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, my guest today is here to talk about mental health in later life, a subject I think that is to the forefront of many of us at a time when older people are in a particularly vulnerable position in relation to the pandemic and as a result are having to isolate far more. As we know, the loss of routine, different forms of exercise, if any exercise, and particularly socialisation in the current environment has a major impact on mental health. And then for older people, time obviously is more precious and their lives are to some extent at this stage held in suspense. We will get to all of that, but beyond being a consultant and specialising in later life mental health, my guest Dennis Eustace is also a fifth generation psychiatrist and by extension a member of a family with a fascinating history in medicine, unique certainly in this country and probably pretty unique anywhere. Dennis, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Mick. Thank you for having me. Dennis, we'll get to your area of speciality in a minute, but just Briefly, in terms of your own background, the Eustace family owns the Highfield Healthcare Group, which specialises in care for the elderly and the mentally unwell. And it's been in your family since it was first established in 1825 by your ancestor, John Eustace. He, he was a Quaker who seems to have been ahead of his time in addressing mental illness. Well, indeed he was. And actually, uh, Mick, we'll be 200 years uh, going, run by the same family, uh, since 1825, so we're, we're nearing our 200th uh, anniversary. Yes, indeed, uh, John Eustace was indeed a uh, from a Quaker background. And of course, Quakers were, there were two things. First of all, they were um, good people, they were business people. But uh, John Eustace's parents were very alarmed at the state of the mental health uh, services as they were known back in the 1800s. They were very limited. And uh, they were basically workhouses, uh, houses of industry. And the unfortunate people who suffered from uh, mental health issues really had a bad deal. So uh, following on from um, uh, a colleague of theirs in uh, York, uh, an institution known as The Retreat, which is still in existence today, not run by the same family, may I add, uh, The Chooks. And John Eustace uh, decided he would um, train his son as a doctor um, in, 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 a, in a way similar to The Chooks in England. Now, they espoused a thing called moral treatment, which was basically kind to your fellow man. This originated from France by an, a man called Philippe Pinel. In any event, uh, John Eustace trained. He, interestingly enough, he got his first degree in 1812 at the same time that Napoleon was charging on Moscow and completed his final degree in Edinburgh, first in Trinity, then in Edinburgh, in 1815. So great old times. 
and he went to work for <laughs> he went to work for uh, Bloomfield uh, Asylum which is still in existence today, although they have moved, another Quaker institution, and then set up his own business in 1825 for the care of the mentally ill. They were known as asylum doctors, people who ran these institutions. And uh, basically it grew from there. So John uh, had two sons, uh, John and Marcus, and they ran the next generation And then on the third generation, there were four Eustaces running it, including my grandfather. On on the fourth generation, there was my own father and then myself on the fifth. And lastly, the sixth uh, is run by uh, two of my nephews. So it's been in the family all this time. Fantastic. And at every generation, Dennis, there's been uh, somebody who specialised in psychiatry. Oh, yes, it's purely a psychiatric institution. And uh, different Eustaces throughout the years, throughout the nearly 200 years, put their mark. So, uh, for instance, in my time, I was very interested in setting up dementia-dedicated units and uh, for people with Alzheimer's. But also, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a psychiatrist of later life or old age psychiatrist. I feel I'm turning into myself getting old. (laughs) Uh, But I'm also a general adult psychiatrist. So I see all sorts. So throughout the generations, we've had a mix of patients who have all, uh, who've been suffering from the spectrum from 18 years of age up to 99 And we have our records, Mick, to prove this, the type of people who came in. So um, in my uh, nephew's uh, time, and uh, to a lesser extent mine, we went back into acute psychiatry again. Of course, our big name is in uh, dementia care, particularly uh, for people who have challenging behaviour with dementia, those that no longer can manage out in the community. But we also have acute general adult mental health psychiatry as well. And we have a group of psychiatrists who run. But the most important thing is there's always been a Eustace right up to the six generations. Very good. And it's a fascinating history. I've looked some of the course. I think also on your mother's side, you're a stoker, as in Bram Stoker's family. But... One quick thing, Dennis, just in relation to some of the family history. I saw there at one stage, for example, like there's a big farm attached to the hospital. And during famine times, um, uh, several tons of potatoes were offered from the family farm to help feed people, quite obviously at the time. And it was turned down. And uh, am I correct in saying some of that was to do with there there, there was still considered to be something of a stigma attached to mental illness and therefore anything emanating from the general environment was sort of looked on differently, despite the fact you were talking about basically potatoes that were so badly needed. Yes, well, basically the ethos in the Quaker view of looking after the mentally ill was to have a holistic approach and have a farm and the farm produce and some some of the patients worked on the land and it all worked very well. So when the famine struck in the 1840s, the mid-1840s, the Eustaces, still being Quakers, made a donation because, interesting enough, the famine did not affect 
the um, Leinster as much as the West. And you've seen this in terrible document, very unfortunate uh, times that the Irish nation uh, suffered from during this time. And as a result of that, um, the lumper, which was the potato of choice in those days, was grown quite successfully on the East Coast. So we were growing potatoes. We had about, oh, I don't know, about 200 acres here out in Glasnevin. And we would, we, we made a donation. And I think it wasn't to do with the mental illness, Mick. It was to do with Quakerism. And Quakerism oh. was tended to be viewed with suspicion by the government of the day, that was the crown, you know, and and I think it was more to do with than than anything to do with mental mental health. Uh, yet, uh, of course, um, mental asylums around the country where the, uh, the famine didn't ravage with potato blight, they grew spuds and they made donations to the state and they were accepted. Right. So I'm afraid it was to do with the Quakers. Well, that's it. It's interesting too, which just shows you like in the past, some of the notions that were half crazy to put it quite simply. Quick thing, Dennis, just before moving on, in relation to your family and quite obviously it's it's ingrained in your family history and that, but the whole area of psychiatry over the last 200 years, now I'm not asking for a, <laughs> a, a, a thesis on it, but uh, just in, in, in general terms, would you say that the advances in what you might call the medicine of the mind have gone anywhere near as far as, as the advances in general medicine or is it a far more complicated area in that respect? Well, Mick, I'd like to respond by, to that by saying the brain is undiscovered country. I mean, whereas um, with, with, with all due respects to my colleague who deal in general medicine and surgery, and they deal with organs like the liver or the colon or the lungs, uh, which, of course, are challenging. And But the brain is a completely different matter altogether. And it's mystified people throughout the years. And why mental illness uh, comes about, we really don't know. So the father of psychiatry, uh, Sigmund Freud, for instance, felt uh, there was great psychological forces at play. In in a more enlightened world today, um, particularly in the last 50 or 70 years, we've moved very much to wonder about psychiatry and mental illness in a medical model. So basically, um, is there a physical cause for this? Now, of course, you may say, but look, if you are, what about depression or anxiety and stress? Surely that can be brought on by um, different factors in a person's life. And that is absolutely true. But behind all that is the brain's working and why certain people seem to be able to accept stress with no problem at all, whereas others seem to crumble quite easily. And in the mix, you have those famous neurotransmitters in the brain, things called serotonin and um, noradrenaline. And with the uh, advent of uh, antidepressants, which, by the way, were invented in 1952, and although tweaked in the 1980s, we still are using the same type of medicines today for treating depression and anxiety. There hasn't been one single 
a light bulb moment since the 1950s. But to get back to your question, to me, I think there's a combination of uh, in therapy programs for people with anxiety and depression, it's not just pills alone. Of course, it's talking therapy. It's guiding that person through the right form of therapies. For instance, my daughter is a specialist in cognitive behaviour therapy. She works in Highfield. And this is very much to the fore in treatment today. So here's an alternative method of treating mental illness. But you see, it's all to do with what's going on in the brain. And as our um, science improves, we understand with brain imaging, far beyond MRI scans, PET scans, spec scans, DOPA scans, we're beginning to see things that we never saw before in the brain. Personally, I think it's a bit of a mix of both. But to be honest, we're a long way off. And just in, in terms of the pharmacology aspect of it, Dennis, as you said, there has been no light bulb moment since sort of the early versions of antidepressants. But wouldn't that be in very much contrast with the advances that have been made against physical disease in terms of, of drugs to treat them? Yes, uh, yes, uh, drugs to treat f- ordinary physical illness. You're absolutely right. And that comes back to my problem about... You can't just make open up somebody's brain and have a look inside and say, oh, I now know what's, what's wrong here. We, we, we are only touching on it. And that's the difference. Whereas if you look at emphysema in the lungs, and I know this is extremely simplistic, but you will see disease and you know what emphysema is. But when you're looking at things like Alzheimer's disease or mood disorder or anything like that, you, you, it's, it's, it's really difficult. And you, you can't blame scientists for uh, not having another light bulb moment in the last 70 odd years. And uh, don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I'm delighted that I have these tools in pharmacology to help me in my craft as a psychiatrist. But obviously, empathy, talking, it's extremely important. Uh, You need that personal touch. And I believe, uh, although Quakerism is not very common in Ireland today, I'd probably be wrong to say that, but their idea of the moral uh, aspect to treatment still lives on in everybody, and that's the way psychiatry should be practised. This is a fascinating area, the whole thing. We're moving on to the moment, Dennis. What kind of things are you seeing now among older people within the last 12 months and the impact this is having on their mental health? Okay, if I'm wrong, if I use the word tsunami, I don't like using the word tsunami. We we use it for quite a lot of things apart from what a tsunami is. But I have to honestly say, I must concede where the elderly are concerned because we in, in, in Highfield and indeed my colleagues uh, that I know in Dublin uh, who are old age psychiatrists have seen a tsunami of cases. People that would never have presented before we're now seeing. Um, I'll give you just a classic example. Um, we, see, we see people, I, I saw a lady the other day who uh, excellent mental health throughout her life. 
um, never any problems at all. Very independent, 82-year-old lady. And suddenly, during the pandemic, she lost her husband. Well, I don't have to go in to say how horrible that was and all the restrictions. That poor lady could not grieve her husband. And as a result of that, you, you know, there was a, a, she couldn't be there when he died, etc., etc. So here I know in, in people, everybody has to die sometime or another, and we all grieve in our own private way. But I honestly have to say this is particularly cruel. It's particularly cruel for everybody but for a, a woman who was 33 married to a husband who was in fine health and within 10 days he was gone and, you know, the restrictions about funerals and everything like that. So there is a typical example of somebody that I wouldn't have normally seen. I wouldn't have seen people coming to me with sleep disturbance uh, a fear of the fact that they're they're terrified of this illness, and first of all, and it, it, you know, we 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 had to do it. People were cocooned because of the fear that the elderly would. And we saw what happened in the nursing homes in 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 the April panda uh, wave, and then unfortunately, as a result of this. These people were socially isolated. Now, you might say, oh, well, what about the sons and daughters? Well, of course they were there to help. But many elderly people, either in Dublin or rurally, and I'd see a lot of people from around Ireland, um, they would have, uh, they would be living independently on their own. Their children would be up in Dublin. And now there was a situation where they either had to go and live with their children and the children obviously would be working because the parents are elderly or the mother is elderly. And as a result of that, there, there would be, and many of the older people did not want, they're independent, they want to stay at home. So what about what would they normally do pre-pandemic? They'd go down to the local shops, they'd chat with Mrs. Murphy and the news agents, they probably were driving a car, they would go to re retirement activities and now they become totally isolated. Now, I know, to be fair, younger people have had a terrible time with this. But could you imagine an older person being restricted in this way? So it was an awful double-edged sword to be in. And then there was the loneliness. And then, oh, you know, and here's something, Mick, that I think, and certainly at my age, that I believe this has been a lost year. Remember, as we get that bit older, the clock is ticking. I don't like saying it, but could you imagine an older person living either with their husband or on their own, and here is a totally wasted year. They couldn't do anything. They had to stay at home and be minded. And older people don't like being minded, particularly if they're independent. They don't like that sort of approach. And, and so it's a lost year. And God knows what's going to happen for 2021. Yes, indeed. We can, we can only, I suppose, at this stage hope. A couple of elements to that, Dennis, I think that people will find very interesting. And in relation to, to the, the, the woman you mentioned who lost her husband, Naturally, an, another issue when one is of advanced years is those around you whom you, perhaps you grew up with, siblings, friends, etc. People can, they die, you know, relatively frequently. And you have that whole issue of grieving 
and bereavement. And as you said, I, I, I think it's something that perhaps isn't appreciated. The, the, the whole ritual around the funeral and the impact that that has had and the ability of people to congregate around the bereaved is a massive thing. That's one element. With, and the other thing you mentioned, and I think which, again, some of us perhaps take uh, don't 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 give proper cognizance. To, and that is the whole element of fear that for uh, older people, the fear of contracting it is of such a far greater um it impacts on them far greater on the basis that their mortality is threatened far more than perhaps somebody who's younger and in the fullness of their health. Absolutely. And another thing that's, that I've discovered is that people, older people, worry about younger people not sticking to the guidelines. And I know there's only a small uh, minority of people who do this. But, you know, if you're living down in rural Roscommon, Let's say somebody died, there was a funeral. Now, we do know occasionally, I'm not saying it's Roscommon, but I'm just saying in the country, the funeral is a very big thing and it's very hard for people um, to to not go and give the person, uh, offer their condolences and things like that. So uh, the, the older person is looking on and they see people breaking the rules uh, and they see large numbers of people at funerals. And then they also see younger people not wearing masks and they get fixated about that. And I, I have seen that. And, um, but I have to say the children of the elderly are very, very good where that is concerned. But Mick, now I don't know about you, but every evening you get that thing on your phone that says how many cases we have suffered from. And then we, if, if you don't have your phone, you have your TV and you watch the six o'clock news or the Neffet briefing. And older people, you know, give them credit. They watch this and they're absolutely terrified of it. Absolutely petrified. So you asked me about elderly and mental health. I'm telling you one of the most commonest disorders that's come out is panic, anxiety and insomnia. And that is something. And these people would never have shown up with symptoms like that before. And from a personal point of view, Dennis, that notion of, as you said, the, the, the daily um, toll that's advertised in the news. And let's face it, unfortunately, because it is so dominant, the whole issue of the pandemic is a major feature of the news in general. And I suppose the other element there is older people tend to be more plugged into the news and what's going on. And you just wonder whether it's a benefit to their health in general in that respect. Yes, but Mick, you can't stop people no. from from obviously watching the news. And as younger people, they can't turn around to granny and say, you're not to tune in, by the way, it'll only upset you. You know, the other, the other aspect, which um, I don't know if you're going to touch on, but in my field, I have a great interest in neurodegenerative disorder. So I have a, a, an interest in Alzheimer's disease, particularly early onset, but that's by the by. It, since this has happened, I am seeing people who, let's say you've got a, a couple living at home. The husband goes to the GP and says, I think there's something wrong with my wife. Her memory isn't as good as what it was or vice versa. And what we're beginning to see is under normal circumstances, the husband would have been out playing golf. He never spotted 
little foibles, little memory issues, etc., etc. The second thing we do know is that anxiety and depression, isolation and loneliness give rise to if you don't lose it, if you don't use it, you lose it. So in the elderly people, when they are subjected to all this sort of thing of anxiety and depression, isolation, loneliness, social distancing, you name it, they're more likely to go into cognitive decline. Remember, they're unable to go down to the shops. They're unable to go to partake in activity centres, care centres, all those sort of things that they used to be able to do. And they they can't do it. So there is definite tie-in between um, using your brain uh, with the with now with depression and anxiety, you're more likely to lead into early cognitive decline. So what I'm seeing now is a thing called mild cognitive impairment, where older people are developing memory lapses. And it's been spotted by family members. Now, this is not somebody who's being diagnosed. This is somebody who is an emerging new cognitive decline. And therefore, I have to assess them and do whatever I have to do to assess them. But I'm seeing an awful lot more of that. And the other thing I'm seeing is the pre-existing people with Alzheimer's or any type of dementia, the families that are living with them, they're deteriorating faster than they normally would which is a real concern because under normal circumstances, they had their centres to go to. They had huge input um, uh, for their condition and that's all being taken away. So these are the sort of people we're seeing more of and I'm I'm being asked advice about why is mother deteriorating more than she should have? Um, Why has mother got cognitive decline? And the worry about mild cognitive impairment is that although many people don't get past the point of just mild cognitive impairment, 10 to 15 percent convert into Alzheimer's disease every year. So this is a burden. Those people you're referring to would have signs of mild cognitive impairment. Dennis, what are the chances that, you know, let's try and be a bit optimistic, say we come out of this and there's the vaccine gets rolled out, there's able to be some attempt to return to what was normality. Is the prospect for people in that category good on the basis that it can be retrieved, that that, that sort of um, decline? If it's a neurodegenerative disorder, what's lost is lost, Mick. It's an irreversible condition. I know where you're coming from. And it's never been tested. The answer truly is we don't know. But it causes me great concern because I I know this condition. I've been involved with dementia care, etc. and diagnosis, etc. for many, many years now. And it's a slow condition. And there is no doubt about it that if you put things in place, improve activities... Uh, etc etc you can change this around a little bit but I just worry and the length of time that all this is going on is having a profound effect on people on these people with their cognitive decline so the longer it goes on the more the person is subjected to isolation so social distancing loneliness is does not bode well for these people 
Yeah, it's interesting because naturally we are to some extent obsessed with the immediate at the moment because of the impact of the pandemic. But what you seem to be suggesting, Dennis, is that over the medium to longer term, there's going to be an awful lot of fallout in terms of mental illness and particularly with older people. Yes, and I think it is. And what worries me, and I don't want to get into politics here, mental health services uh, we're not going to have enough funding to handle all this. And that's that's a great concern to us. Um, but we don't know really how it will play out. I have a concern about um, cognitive impairment. I think this has done a lot of damage to people, both who have pre-existing illness in dementia and those that are developing it. And why they develop it, I am not sure, but I think it's to do with things like decline as a result of social isolation, anxiety and depression. And it's been documented. That is a fact. And the, the other thing that arises, Dennis, I suppose, is that hopefully within the next month, uh, we're told that certainly most people, I think o- o- over 70, should be receiving the, the vaccine. Do you foresee that Despite that, older people still won't let their guard down. They'll be far slower, perhaps, to let it down than might be the case with those of of a younger age group when they receive the vaccine. Well, I I think it's absolutely incredible what's, what's happened in relation to the development of a vaccine within a year. Not one, two, three, and probably six or nine coming on stream. And this is certainly going to be a huge step forward. But your question is... What about the elderly? Will it give them some sort of reassurance? Well, unfortunately, what doesn't help is when you want to get reassurance that uh, vaccines are going to protect you. Yes, well, we know that. But could it? Could you pass it on to somebody? So older people listen to this and they're worried about the fact, will they have to continue with the type of restrictions or cocooning that they've been used to? Um, at the same time, I have to say, older people are very resilient. And I would like to think that with the, the vaccination program, older people will look at younger people. Younger people will get reassured. Therefore, older people will get reassured and so on and so forth. So I would like to think that when all this settles down and vaccinations have all taken place and everything returns to normal, older people will return to normal too. Yes, I said it was a lost year and maybe a lost year and a half, but I would like to think those that have been left uh, affected by it for one reason or another, yes, they can be rescued. I mean, I, I, I think the message out there is if a family member has concern about their loved one, their older loved one, go to the primary care physician, discuss the case, And if the primary care physician wishes, he can refer the person on to an appropriate speciality. Today, unfortunately, um, and in my job anyway, I've had to do video consultations, but they work fairly well. And, you know, you, you develop a rapport. It's not the same as face to face, but it is there. And the good news is that uh, without putting myself on a perch, I've been able to turn people around, older people, people with insomnia, just 
talking and giving them the personal touch. And I think when they see me, Mick, and they see an older man here, they say, ah, well, he obviously <laughs> knows what he's talking about. <laughs> I know. Uh, one final thing, Dennis, is there a case? Because, I you know, like, you, you, you deal in, in the field, but I suppose more general, apart from the fact that most of us uh, have relatives that are in the older age category, and we've some... Um, knowledge about it but is there a case for greater health promotion in terms of encouraging older people to do perhaps small things that might alleviate any concern or any prospect that they could fall into mild cognitive uh, issues and that kind of thing well i i think yes and no the esp is you're absolutely right that's how that's how we deal with people who are developing um, mild cognitive issues. And we have a ways around. There's no magic pill or anything like that. But activities are huge in helping people. Uh, The reassurance that it's a very slow process and, you know, just be aware of that and give them reassurance there. But the downside is the uncertainty that we're facing still. And... You, it's all very well. You, you know, our our daycare centres, our um, retirement um, meetings, all this is still closed. And until that opens up, there is this big question mark about one: how long this is going to go on for, and in two, how is it going to affect people's mental health, particularly people with cognitive impairment, going on? And the longer it goes on, the worry I have. So. What you're saying to me is, let's say if everything uh, is hunky-dory in the next few months and older people can get out and they can go back to their old self again, unfortunately, I hope the damage hasn't been done. I would like to think not, but I worry about it. And nobody knows, to be honest, Mick, nobody knows the full extent of how this is going to pan out. But it's better to be aware than that this might happen so we can have an action plan in place. That people are aware and that, you know, in rural communities, that it's important. And we've seen it. It's great. Those people who have been visiting the elderly people in their homes, people who are living alone or a couple, it's great. That's what you need to see. And if you see that sort of uh, action going on, you know that that's very, very good for the person. You know, it's very important. No magic silver bullet, I'm afraid. Unfortunately, we'll always look for one, Dennis, but naturally (laughs) there's none there. Listen, it's great talking to you. Thanks very much. Very informative, I have to say, for all of us and something most definitely and at a time like this that we all need to be far more aware of. Dennis Eustace, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Mick, for having me. Uh, I also want to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. Tune in to us on any of the usual platforms or let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you soon, folks. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. 
That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.